0: So I say that it's worked for me, but I always like to think about it through the lens of here's the framework. You have a goal, work backwards from the goal, and how do you get there and outlining the steps associated with that. And I like to think about it across several dimensions. And so for me, those dimensions are what am I doing with my health? What am I doing personally, professionally? What am I doing about the the things that drive how I'm working?
1: From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Laz, three-time CISO and co-founder of Blue Lava Security. At 12 years old, Laz borrowed $500 from his uncle for a Commodore VIC-20. And four years later, Air Force recruiters were knocking at his family's door. He joins us today to explain his approach to career development and cover how a lifelong love of learning led him to success as a security leader. There are 24 hours in a day, and balancing that time to ensure both personal and professional growth is a challenge. So why should you establish your end goal first, then work backwards? How can you be coachable, but also coach others? And when, if ever, should you get your MBA? Okay, Laz, first off, welcome to the show and thanks for being here with us. For the uninitiated, if you would, please introduce yourself.
0: All right. Well, Steve, my name is Demetrius Lazaricus and Laz is probably easier. I'm honored to be here. I appreciate you making the time to have me here. And also want to say, you know, thank you to Kelly, yourself, and the listeners for making time to listen to this. Cause I know everybody has choices of where they spend their time. I've been a CISO three times. I've been in the security space for over 30 years. And I had the opportunity to found a company called Blue Lava. So as a practitioner, I thought it was important to build out a platform where security leaders could measure, optimize, and communicate what they're doing with their security program. So I'm excited to share my thoughts and some of the topics that we prepped for and we can walk through today.
1: Yeah, there was a big discussion early on. I don't know if it's just to save me or the listener or just if the world knows you more as Laz, but for the listener of how we were going to introduce Laz, but we'll, we'll include both his full and truncated name in the description of the show for the benefit of everyone so i kind of start most shows the same way and i thought it was extremely interesting when we had our chat earlier uh, i always ask how did you get your start and you know you kind of took us back somewhere between 12 and 14 years old when you're going through and and sort of making capital acquisitions and taking loans out to get your hands on technology tell us about that
0: yeah i think you know for me I think I fall into the category of life learner, and I was also a very curious child. I was very creative. And a little background on that, I grew up in a very traditional Greek household. My parents are immigrants, and my mom was actually the one who inspired me to start looking at technology. And she had encouraged me to start looking at Computers and technologies that were out there. I was in a grade school. Uh, The grade school started receiving, I was at a Catholic grade school. The grade school started receiving these um, donations with these computers and technologies. So we're going back to the Commodore VIC 20 time period. And, you know, my mom said, if you're going to get ahead, I think this is the future. And she encouraged me to borrow $500 from one of my uncles. And I did. And I bought this really nice computer. It was a Commodore VIC-20 with a cassette tape for backups. And I blew that out. Uh, I blew the memory out. And I had to go buy a, a six Commodore 64 and then a 128 and then a TRS-80. And that was really the start of it. But, you know, I think for me, it was looking at technology and trying to solve problems. The goal was. I wanted to build a probability analytics engine, which I did on the Commodore VIC-20, but that was really helping uh, our grade school principal learn where we were doing well and where we were not doing well with different courses and studies. This is going back to the Iowa aptitude test, so those little Scamtron tests where we had number two pencils and had to fill out circles. And I really just wanted to demonstrate where we were strong or where we were weak and where we could make additional, I guess, investments in time to learn. So that worked. That's how I got my start. And then by the time I got to high school, that was 14, I realized in my typing class that I was on a Wang mainframe. And what was nice about that was, well, it was, it was nice because I had more power, but what was not so nice about it was that I didn't have enough power to write some of the programs I wanted. And I didn't realize that the mainframe was... Not ours, and that we least some time on it,
1: and that's where I got really curious about how systems work. So, what were you programming in at, at this? Are you is this? Are you talking Basic? What are you writing in?
0: Yeah. So, on the Commodores, it was you know their native language. All the commands were poke or peak, and you know that's how I wrote most of the programs there. Then I graduated to Basic on the TRS-80, and then I wrote more Basic on the uh, Wang. And then that was just the start of it. And it was pretty simple. I thought it was pretty straightforward. The systems were actually interesting. For me, it was understanding, like, here's an application that has to, it's resident on this computer, but I want to move this application or take compute power from another source, and maybe I can copy this program over to another machine. And then I started realizing that these systems were interconnected and how the systems worked. And BASIC was a great foundation for me. And that's what I used, even in the Air Force. And you know, I evolved to DBase three, three plus, Paradox, Lotus, one, two, three, and I started programming in those those languages as well.
1: Let's go back to something you said earlier. You mentioned a you said a traditional Greek family. For those that are not familiar with what would be a period traditional Greek family, what is Describe some of that for the, the listener who, who may not be familiar. You said it in a way that there was a blueprint that one could expect. And then I've got to follow on to that. What explain that to her.
0: Okay. So Steve, I think the cool thing about today, I can point to a place and say, or a time or a thing. And I could say, Hey, has everybody seen my big fat Greek wedding? That was my house growing up. It was lots of family members, you know, coming over for celebrations. So my big fat Greek wedding was like everything that was going on at my house. For those of you who have not seen the movie, it was a very, you know, my parents were entrepreneurs. My grandparents were entrepreneurs. And, you know, I'm the first boy. Actually, I'm the only boy. I've got, you know, several sisters. So all of a sudden, you know, it's like, you know, there's a lot of pressure. You know, it's like you're going to take over the family business. You're going to work with the family. And, you know, we had a bunch of things going on there, but I kind of went off the traditional path and started looking at technology and pushing my limits there because, you know, and again, I go back to my mom saw the future and she really encouraged me to do that.
1: Well, that's kind of where I was heading. I mean, I think that it's interesting that there's these inflection points in life. It's hard to explain the situation, even when you have A hindsight of 10, 20, 30, 40 years, but the fact that your mother said, not only you should be interested in technology, but the fact that then she said, basically go use your uncle as a loan shark to go buy it.
0: Yeah. And I had to pay interest on that. And it's funny. I was 12 and I was like, what am I thinking? What am I doing? I'm going to borrow several hundred dollars from my uncle, pay him back. And this is going back decades, pay him back at 5% interest, which I did, and I paid them back early, but my mom was super cool. She wanted to make sure that we really understood the concept of time and the value of time and earning over a set period, and that could be a day, a week, a month, a year, but she was critical in making me think about things as how they operated in the world.
1: So what was the payback period of this? I want to get into this $500 loan at a 5% VIG.
0: It's funny. I think I still have the note that I did. I think he was really flexible about it. And I know he was on board with just teaching me what this was going to look like. I did a five-year, I think it was a three-year or five-year at 5% interest. Paid it off earlier, but then
1: borrowed more money so I could purchase the other computers. So what were you doing in order to hustle up the money on that, like as a 12-year-old?
0: Yeah, as a 12-year-old, I was announcing, well, I I was playing baseball, so that was in my free time. But then I was also an announcer at the baseball parks that were nearby the home. So I did the announcements and I did all the tracking of the players and what was going on. So I earned an income there. I cut grass. And when I say, you know, cutting grass, mowing grass, it was also
1: like shrubs and trees and stuff like that. I was just curious because that's a sizable amount of money. I mean, I don't know exactly what year this is, but I can kind of zoom in on it. I just think it's an interesting set of things that are happening in this moment of time. And I, I don't know if something similar could be redone today, but I think it's interesting when, you know, having to figure out at 12, 13, 14 years old, okay, I'm going to take out a loan, there's interest. That sort of paints a picture for the future. And often that's why I wanted to go back to it because it was a little interesting. I want to jump to another topic though. When did you meet Carl Sagan? And for those that don't know Carl Sagan, if you've seen the original Cosmos, that's the man. How old were you? Was this in high school? Is this in Air Force? Is this in between?
0: Yeah, so I met Dr. Carl Sagan, I believe I was 10. I was in a gifted program, and what I would do is I would disappear from the main class and you know be shuttled to another school where I could study math and science twice a week. And we went on a field trip to chicago and i heard him speak and what was interesting about it was he had this way of just communicating with everybody that you know i felt like he was communicating with me just one-on-one like hey laz think about this and what was nice about that when i was so young you know i think you know was very impressionable he said look you can do anything you want and it doesn't matter what your background is. Your future is basically wide open. You can do anything you want. And he said something that, was, you know, that resonated with me, because he was so in touch with all these students and everything. And I, I leaned on the tech side and the engineering and math for my background, you know, at 10, I, I just like math. And he just said, look, you can do anything you want. Technically, anything is possible. You just have to start aligning it to your goals. And I thought that was pretty interesting at 10 to be exposed to that. And then, you know, as you mentioned, right, going into learning about finances at 12 and 14 and the times where I purchased those computers, i walked away going, I thought the world operated this way. Isn't this, (laughs) you know, here I am in this Greek entrepreneurial family. Everybody's just surrounding me with a lot of love and a lot of ways to think about how to operate in the world. And I thought everybody operated that way. It wasn't until years later, I didn't realize that everybody had the same experience.
1: Yeah, unfortunately not. But that's a, a, maybe a blueprint for to how to support success because it sounds like a, a great educational opportunities, you know, additional studies, access. Uh, and even if your parents probably weren't in tune with technology, they were enough to know that it was an opportunity, a catalyst moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about going into the air force and how kind of the set that up for us and maybe talk a little bit about your four years you spent in there so how did you kind of get introduced at a high level what did you do and, and what was what was kind of the the lesson in that if that were a chapter in a book like how would you close that out
0: yeah that was an interesting time so going from the wang mainframe and realizing that you know i had all this compute power or so I thought. I started realizing how systems talk to each other. So I started reading the admin manuals, the systems, and I started connecting to other systems. But at the time, I didn't know what I was doing. I said, oh, okay, well, look, that's a machine. And looking at it through a systemic approach would say, I need more compute power. Let me move my software over there. That seems like it has more power. And some of the machines and the systems that I talked to were they didn't change the admin passwords or the IDs. And, you know, pretty soon I'm on a number of systems. One day, the Air Force stopped by my house to speak to my mom. They were looking for Demetrius Lekarakis, which is a total, you know, butchering my name. And my mom then said, well, you know, he's only in high school, right? I was, uh, I was 16 at the time where I started really understanding how systems operated and the interconnectivity of them. And I was also in this Catholic high school and one of our deans said, you know, listen, this could be an opportunity if they're serious about recruiting you. So my mom was actually the one who negotiated my contract with them and they were very clear about offering me something that was different. And it was training, education, school, top secret clearance, and then working, you know, in somewhere around secure communications. So that was the start of the Air Force. And I attribute family, friends and people that were in family in the family that had gone to the military. And then my mom, who not only negotiated the contract, but emancipated me. So at 17, I signed up for the United States Air Force and I, I had the opportunity then to go overseas. I went 40 miles north of London. Then from there, I went to Colorado Springs. And I realized that if i look back at time and you you know steve i have to really thank you and kelly for giving me some thought time over the past week as we started talking about doing this podcast because there are times where i've i've had the opportunity to sit down and look at this and but in a 10 year period when i was so young and learning there are things that happened that you know like you said hindsight i can go back now and i can look at it and go wow, I can't believe that happened when I was 10, 12, 14, 17. And the Air Force was really, really good to me and for me. When I separated, I stayed in touch with a lot of the people that I was working with. I like to say I create long-term relationships and I try to keep those intact. You know, Everything from when I was a child to today, I think it's critical. And when I discharged and separated from the Air Force, You know, I stayed in Colorado, but I stayed in touch with the military, which was, you know, again, I go back to it was a great experience. I had the chance to live overseas. I had my education. I had the GI Bill. Uh, I just learned about things that were, again, fundamental and foundational
1: for operating in society. Trying to remember 40 miles north. Is that around Greenwich?
0: Yeah. So 40 miles north of London was city called Luton. And I was at a base that's not there anymore, but it was affectionately, we called it an elephant cage, but it was a very, very giant listening and communications post. So we had, it was RAF Chick Sands, Royal Air Force Chick Sands. So we had about a thousand military people on base, hundreds of civilians. Our job was to support and communicate to other bases. There were about six worldwide that we communicated and talked to. There was uh, Fort Meade, Okinawa, Iraklion, Crete, Goodfellow, Texas, Woomera, Australia, Thule, Greenland, and Colorado Springs. And because of technology and the advancements made there, Chixan's you know was decommissioned, but still you know again going back then, powerful technology for the time that we were using it
1: been in that area and I was kind of wondering like where what is that or where is that? So when we had our earlier conversation, you spent a lot of a lot of time talking about family and all what went into that. I mean, even just you, I think it was every other Saturday you said you'd go to the library and it's sort of this foundation of learning. Bring that forward to today. That's what you were doing as a child. What are you doing today? that is maybe the blueprint that follows that as it relates to whatever the educational pursuit is for you what's today's version of that does that exist
0: yeah so let me if, if i can if you're okay with it steve i'll talk a little bit about the library and what that, what would happen there so my mom did not drive and my dad was working a lot and so my mom would take us to the library on saturday if I wasn't playing baseball or if I didn't have a game that I had to announce, I would end up going to the library on Saturdays, picking up a couple books, taking them home, reading. So I read every day uh, for years. And what would happen is then we'd go back to the library you know, every two weeks, drop those books off. In addition to that, what would also happen is my dad would come home and he would hand us a newspaper. So it was um, the Herald News or it was the Chicago Tribune. And, you know, he'd say, pick a story. And I had to write every story out in print and then in cursive. And I had to be able to talk about the story and what was happening in the story. So that was always an exercise that would happen after dinner, after homework. And then, you know, that was our, you know, like we had to pick a story, write it out and talk about it. Now, flash forward, how does that impact, you know, some of the things that I do today? Well, the first thing is when, when I look at learning, There's, you know, and this is what I've learned through my life, my career, my journey. Education is something that nobody can ever take away. It's coupled with your experiences. So reading has always been the foundation of, for for me, it's been the foundation of how do I learn? How do I apply? What do I do? That's part one. Part two is I also like to look at history, you know, past, present, you know, like what's going on and does history repeat itself? The third part about that is I also look to the people that have, you know, who are established in their careers and what do they do. And I like to read about, you know, like those people that are, that are out there that have written what they've done to help them or what their lessons learned have been in their careers. So looking at it through that lens, you know, that's like one way to learn. If I could also tie that to something that you touched on, which is really financial discipline and being financially responsible. That's something that has resonated with me. So today, when I look at what I'm learning, how I'm applying it, I mean, I can tell you right now, week to week, you know, I read a lot still. I do. It's funny. I've got three library cards right now for three different cities. And when I need to get some peace time in, I'll go to the library, maybe, you know, during the week at night or whatever, a coffee shop. I just need a place where I can go and just decompress and read. and understand more about what's happening, you know, on a given topic. And then, you know, the financial discipline and the responsibility there, I touched on, you know, with the uh, <laughs> the $500 loan, it gave me the thought process of being responsible and living within my means and trying to do what was right in the time, but then also thinking forward.
1: So, let I mean, you kind of laid out a little bit of a framework there, and I don't know if it was just from memory or if it actually had sort of firmer steps to it but it was sort of the method of learning applying and doing you mentioned trying to dip into history and, and trying to identify you know trends and repetition and then the last well not second to last if you include financial discipline but I'm going to set that out the other was people who were established in their career And I think you can take that two ways, one through historical figures and what was their life like, but then also just more recent, you know, other security leaders and what have they done and, you know, that kind of thing. Is that, if you're giving advice to people today, is is that part of the framework you recommend or is there other things, you know, we spend a lot of time on community and, you know, mentoring and giving back. Is that the elements of the the, the cornerstones or is there additional things that you would recommend if you're sort of imparting that knowledge to others? Yeah, I think... I think that's a starting point. And
0: the thing I always keep in mind, this has worked for me. It may not work for others, but I also think it's important to talk about these things because as we're talking about community, mentoring, giving back, philanthropy, whatever aspect of, you know, how we function in society, I think it becomes important to, you know, just look at it through That view and understand kind of like, where am I? Where do I want to be? And I always like to look at where I want to be and work backwards. I, 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 you know, I think from right to left. I don't think from left to right. And what I mean by that is when I look at the reading and all the pieces and parts of education, giving back and, you know, looking at mentoring or, you know, being a mentee, understanding what the goal is, working from the, that aspect of it and backwards this approach has always worked for me. I don't know. I, I think it's worked for others because I've mentored and worked with others, you know, CISOs and business leaders. So I, I hope it works. But we've got a lot of time, you know, we as, you know, security leaders and business leaders, we have a lot of time that we've made these investments with future leaders and people that have asked to be mentored or asked to be part of a community and level up their game. So I say that it's worked for me, but I always like to think about it through the lens of, here's the framework. You have a goal, work backwards from the goal, and how do you get there? And outlining the steps associated with that. And I like to think about it across several dimensions. And so for me, those dimensions are, what am I doing with my health? What am I doing personally, professionally? What am I doing about the, the things that drive how I'm working? And you know, at the end of the day, those are things that I think about on a
1: daily basis. I think that a couple of things there. So having a working backwards from a, a goal, I'll give a very simple example. Earlier in my career, I believed I enjoyed structuring some of my free time around the studying or for credentialing. So CISSP, PMP, that kind of thing. And one of the one of the people I spoke with about this said, hey, you have to kind of visualize yourself. I had these note cards and he said on the first note card, was studying for the PMP project management uh, certification, which I've since let expire, but he said, you know, he left his name out, but at the top note card, it was comma PMP because it's considered a credentialing, you know, and so you're sort of looking at that as the the highest level, you're sort of visualizing yourself with this, with this credential, which again, at some point in my life was considered important. I, I don't put as much, there's not as much gravity for me at this point in my life. Certifications, I think, are often misguided, but they do allow you to apply your time around a goal and study and break down and say, okay, I think I'm going to need 10 weeks of study and this many hours a day of, of reading and this many hours of practice tests and things like that. I think that's a, you're sort of visualizing uh, in a very elementary way of, of attaining this thing. And I think that's at certain phases of your career, I think that's a good thing. As you get older, it's less important. Do you have an example? A similar example? or
0: Absolutely. And I'm I'm excited that you brought this up. So I affectionately call this time motion, right? And you as a practitioner and you as an operator, Steve, what you did was you laid it out. You said, I've got 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That gives me 168 hours to do something. And that 168 hours was something that was like etched in my mind as a child. It's like, okay, well, how are you going to spend your time? Okay, I'm going to play baseball. I'm going to do these things. And then as I got older, it's like, okay, well, baseball became less of, hey, I'm not going to pursue that for whatever reasons. But I started to work on my career. And as I started building my career, it was the same approach that you took. It was like, hey, let me carve out some time for certs. What are they? But I would always go back to, and I call them the security greats, right? The, they're the titans in security. What have they done? What are they working on? What should I be doing? And, you know, whether it was a, a attending Black Hat or DEFCON or some of the other local cons, I would look at and say, okay, what did you do? Why were you so successful? And I would ask people, you know, how they did it and what they did and how much time should I carve out and what should I do? And what was interesting about it and something that you just hit on was how am I going to spend my time on this cert? And at what point will it help me? And what point do I say, okay, I've already established in my career what do I do next? Because as security practitioners, we have to look at it through that view. We have to consider what I want to do down, my, you know, with my career and other things that are coming up, which are really exciting for us as practitioners and operators is that the business drivers now for security are top of mind for every company globally and Whether you're a practitioner, you hold on to the cert or not, you still have a number of years experience. For me, I approach it the same way you did. And, you know, some of the certs I had to lapse because it just became a balance of time. And when I go back to time motion, it's like, where am I going to spend my time? I only have a fixed amount of time per week, per month, per year that I can work on things. Am I bummed that I didn't renew or I didn't recertify? Yeah, but. At the end of the day, I think you've got to balance what's important for you and those goals across what where you're at and where you want to be. Again, goal setting and working backwards.
1: I had a conversation with a guy a couple of weeks ago, and he's about my age. And he was thinking, he was like, hey, Steve, should I go get an executive MBA at like a tier one school? And for those of you that have looked into this, it's extremely expensive you're talking could easily be even the executive programs are going to be 150 200 grand around there probably other incidentals and even with uh he was not going to be sponsored so he'd be paying most of this out of pocket and my advice and i'd like to know your take on this laz was you know for that kind of money what i would do at this phase of my life and in my career i would rather bundle that up and start a side hustle with some people. I can take a couple hundred grand. I can pair that up with some smart people and probably build something. And I'm gonna learn as much out of that process specific to an MBA as I would at probably going in to the tier one school. Now the counterpoint, the idea or the allure of a a tier one school is the network of people that you're gonna meet. And I'm gonna get into that topic here in my next set of questions, so don't go there yet. But what's your take on the surface response, the idea? Do I go get a tier one MBA or do I maybe do a side hustle? What are your thoughts?
0: Okay, so I would analyze this a little bit more. And I, for me personally, I have to look at what are, what are my goals and then working backwards from the goals. So I had one of my mentors and I sat down with him and he said, very early days, he said, security leaders do not understand the business. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, it's hard for a security leader to walk into a boardroom or exec staff and talk about things in the business terms. And I said, okay, so what would you recommend? And he said, take some business courses or go get an MBA. So I looked at that and I analyzed it. And I personally put put on hold starting off a couple other things that I wanted to work on to go focus on the MBA. And I made that investment of time and money, so I could actually try to understand what was happening there from through a business view. And the hard part for that was for me, I was forced to really. I, for number one, I had to go back to school, which is not a bad thing, and I'm not complaining about that. But it really came around time management and trying to figure that out. That's part one. Part two, there was an opportunity cost for some of the things I put on hold, like starting up the side hustle with a couple other people. Which ironically is something that I personally lived through. Hindsight, you know, when I look back at it, I would do it all over again. And the one thing I would recommend to anybody in that situation is I, I like to build a pros and cons table. Like, you know, here are the pros, here are the cons, here's what's happening. For me, it was good. It was a good experience. I don't know if the the network connections are as strong as people claim them to be when you're at that level. I have. Several people that I stay in touch with, uh, from college. But to say that you're going to, you know, have this network of tens of thousands of people. Sure. But you have to make that investment in time after you graduate. Now that's part one. Part two is the opportunity cost. Is the side hustle going to be acquired or is it going to be something that's passive income over the next five to 10 years? And so I look at it through those aspects and those dimensions, because it's time to really think about what's best for you. And I encourage everybody to experiment and look at where do I need to go to school? What do I need to do? Do I really need to go to school? Do I put that on hold and do this project with several people that I'm close to? My thing for me personally, I went down the route of school and then putting on hold the other pieces. And I think it worked out okay for me. I would just encourage people to really make that list of pros and cons and then make a decision and then evaluate the decision 30 days in, a quarter in, every six months. Is that something you really want to do? Because that side hustle, Steve, could be more time consuming than you thought. And if you go back to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that's 168 hours. What does that look like and how are you going to spend
1: your time? I think it does. I do think there's an argument though, if you look at the capital outlay to especially if you're buying into prestige for a degree, pursuing additional education, there's a lot of great schools that don't fall into the top two, three, four, five that command these sort of exorbitant, in my opinion, prices. So getting an MBA, that wasn't necessarily the issue. And I think that the split, I think the the challenge in this example that I gave, which may not even have been a great one, is do I buy into prestige because of the network, or do I go and take that money and my time and try to maybe build something on the side? There's no right answer. I think there's other ways to build a network outside of paying a university for that experience. I think that's been uh, proven, especially in the security field. I do think the point you made with speaking the language of the business is an important one. Understanding, in a general sense. What is executive leadership really concerned about? Where do they spend their time cycles and how do the events of the world change their thinking and how they run their business? And then there's sort of this afterthought that's security typically. So how do you sort of act as the clutch and slide into that conversation a little easier?
0: Okay, so there's three parts to that. and I'm going to go back to going to school or working on the other project. I was Air Force and then I finished my undergrad and then I worked for over a decade to get the experience that I, I believe. I mean, in my heart, I believe that I had to do because I wanted to be the best practitioner I could. I wanted to work in the industry, but it was 10 years later where it's like, okay, I have to reevaluate this because what am I going to do 10 years from now, 20 years from now? And I think part of the challenge that goes back into the goal setting for me. I put the education on hold and I did do those other things. Eventually I did go back to school to earn the degree and put the time in. I don't think the network was as big as it was everybody said similar things. Oh, you're gonna have a great network. And it's like, okay, but I've got a great network now of security leaders or business leaders that I built through OWASP and different, you know, like I mentioned, the cons, right? It's hard to explain when I think about it. You show up at a conference you have like-minded people, you show up at a regional group, ISSA, ISACA, B-Sides, you have like-minded people, you show up at a regional con, you have like-minded people, you ask questions, you go, and everybody in the security space, in my opinion, really wants to leave the industry and where we're at in a better place than we joined. And I think everybody's approachable there. So the network and the ability then to network and work with people that are very like-minded is quite powerful. That being said, that's a community that you can lean on and leverage. And one of the things, just being transparent, it's actually one of the reasons why I founded Blue Lava. We saw a community of practitioners that needed to speak the language of the business, and that's why we created the platform and what we're doing at Blue Lava. And we have a community inside of our ecosystem of practitioners where we mentor, share, support, and talk about what's happening. And it's quite powerful, but that goes back to building a community and understanding what people's needs are going to be.
1: Can you spend a second on, we talked earlier about an economic model, and the question you led with was, and it's kind of related to what you just said, but I think this is an important one. It's who is your mentor and, and how did you get here kind of thing on Can you walk us through this concept of an economic model as it relates to sort of your security decision-making career?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So for the listeners, this is something that we had talked about early when we were prepping for the podcast. One of the things that happens, and I built this model. I took some time off the summer of 2021. And I started thinking about how we're working, all of us are working, not only in security, but society. And in there, we, you know, I peeled it back and said, okay, if I'm going to give Laz 2.0, if I can give myself some advice 20 years ago or 30 years ago, what would it look like? And in there, there are several dimensions. And in those dimensions, it really came down to mentorship, which really starts at a very, very early time in our lives. And that mentor for me started with, you know, my mom, my grandmother, my grandfather, the family. And as I transitioned to the military, what was nice about the military is they have a buddy system and they have somebody assigned to you and that person works with you as a mentor. And as you start thinking about your evolving in your life, you have life training and planning. Well, what does that look like? You know, it could be career or academic training. It could be You know, things that you need to learn to be part of society. And in this model, then, you know, as we grow and we start, you know, contributing to society and whatever we're doing, it gives us a way to look at how do I apply for a job? How do I retain a position? How do I go in there? And then, you know, through my entire career, then how do I advance what I'm doing, whether it's personal or professional? And that was the essence of what we were doing about talking about in preparation about today's podcast, which is. How do you establish yourself as that mentor to help bridge the gap where you are and where you want to be? And that was part of the discussion that Steve is talking about here, whether it's got early stage mentorship, I've got life mentors, and it's through training, academic learning, career advancement, applying for a job, and then not only applying for the job, holding on to the job, and then career advancement.
1: Related to that, to the last point you made, what do you think, if there's one common need amongst senior security people, I won't even say CISO, but with the mentorship lens on with, within senior staff, what do they need help with most? What What's the biggest sort of gap or need do you see? Is there any commonality amongst the folks you interact with?
0: I'm going to talk about this in two tracks, if you're okay with it. So in the Blue Lava community, you know, we've got mentor, gather, share, and support. And that's the mentorship there is pretty incredible because we have practitioners from every level coming to us and saying, hey, I want to, you know, I want to be a better SOC analyst, or I want to be a better AppSec person, or I want to stay on the tech track, but I know I have to level up my management skills. Those are three different dimensions that are happening right there. The last part, which is really intriguing, is I'm going to be a security leader. What do I do? And it's like, well, is this your first time as a CISO or is this going to be a director? And it's really going through that process to understand where they're at and where they want to be. Again, going back to the goal setting, that's been instrumental is, you know, and I would give a shout out to Blue Lava team and Chris Ancharsky for building out that Blue Lava community where we have that trusted environment it's the place it's a, it's a it's a safe place for security practitioners and leaders to go but that has been critical is the mentorship but it's almost like there's a bunch of if then scenarios that are people ask it's well how did you get there what are you doing and it's kind of like we're talking about today Steve it's hey look i had planned to work in tech and security but my path may be different from yours and it's really understanding what that goal is and working backwards I would say that people that I've mentored and work with on the career side have been very open. And what I mean by that is when I talk to somebody in the security space, I really want to understand really two things. Are they coachable and are they open to feedback and are they open to new ideas? And that has helped me quite a bit because that was something I learned many years ago. We have to be open to feedback and we have to learn how to work. Because, you know, and that, that gets back into the, you know, are you coachable or not? I think those two aspects with the areas that we focus on for our community as mentor, share, gather and support, those are pretty instrumental. This, that's part one. Part two is I'm also a, an adjunct professor at a couple of universities. And what I try to do with the students is I, I take a similar approach, but it's different because they're still in that early stage and they may not be out in the workforce yet, it's slightly modified because we have to understand, you know, as professors, what their goals are. You know, for the school and for the, you know, the university, it's really getting them inspired to think about things and learn and apply and learn and apply, very much like life and life experience, but this is so they can earn the degree and then move on to what their next phase is going to be. So straightforward on the career side and the business side, Little modified though for the academia.
1: What made you decide to go teach? There's several CISOs I know that have decided kind of as an adjunct to their daytime job, they will also teach for you personally. Why did you want to go teach? There's many benefits, but what was the what was the motive, the idea, the the inspiration to go do that for you personally?
0: It's part of giving back. And so when I look at the community and I look at my experiences ever since I was a child, when I was a kid, I watched my grandparents and I watched my mom and I watched my family. They were teachers. They were my mentors. And I figure the world is divided into several groups. And as part of those groups, it was it was important for me to give back. And when I talk about giving back, and Steve, I'm going to refer to this discussion with you. I'm going to say, okay, it was October 19th, we were talking, Steve Moore and I, and he solidified it. It's really, you have a fixed amount of time. And if I have two hours here and I can give back teaching a student or working with somebody in undergrad or graduate to give them the opportunity to grow, I'm going to do it. And, you know, it's funny because I was pursued by several colleges to do that. And you know, it was, it's flattering. And it's, for me, there's a lot of self gratification in giving back to the community that way.
1: Maybe not a very popular question in some circles, but do you ever have an issue where there's people teaching kind of following the old George Bernard Shaw quote? For those who don't know, it's those who can do, those who cannot teach. And the reason why I say that, it doesn't apply to Laz. But there's sometimes you get a, a lecturer or a professor that is up talking about a subject that's never actually done it. Uh, and that's sometimes just a product of education. And you have other cases where you have those that have done virtually every facet of the topic of security or privacy. And, and as you measure yourself against or look at the value of a program, do you ever find yourself shaking your head at some of the other things you see being taught or, or in a curricula or a book? Have you had that fight yet?
0: I've heard about it, but I personally haven't experienced it. I think for the universities and the level I'm working at, the institutions have been really good about bringing in practitioners and people that have been what I call hands on keyboard. And I think a lot of us collaborate that way. And what's nice about it for me is you've got as a security community, we've got so many people that are interested in teaching. That they're all coming forward and we're, you know, we're sharing syllabuses and lesson plans. And, you know, it's nice about it is everybody, I'm going back to my comment. Are they coachable? Are they open? You know, I'm here. Look, here's my lesson plans. What would you do differently? And learning from people. And probably the best, I think the best professor out there right now is Curtis Coleman. He's a professor of cybersecurity at Oklahoma Christian University and people like Curtis have paved the way for us as security leaders about what's possible in teaching and education.
1: Can you give an example? As I mean, I'm sure you have many, but I mean, this is credit to you giving props to him, but like what would be, so first, I guess I would encourage people to go look the guy up, but what would be something that you think that he's doing that has done or is doing that is a differentiator?
0: So Curtis's background, Curtis was the CISO of Seagate, the hard drive manufacturing company. He's written dozens of patents for the company. He was not only a practitioner, but he was an executive there. And he took that and when one of his colleagues said, hey, Oklahoma Christian University is looking for somebody to build out a cybersecurity program. Here's a guy who donated his time late at night and on the weekends to build the curriculum. And he didn't know what he was getting into. I mean, you can talk to him about it all day long, but his friend and colleague said, okay, now that you built the curriculum, will you go teach it? Now he's a recognized, not only the authority, he took as a practitioner, everything in his head, put it on paper, and he's got two programs, one for undergrad, one for graduate. His school is a certified academic for excellence with the government. And it's like, this is the blueprint. If you're a practitioner and you want to give back and you want to do something, here's Curtis Coleman. Here's what's working for him. Hands on keyboard, operator, executive wanting to give back to a community, partnered with the government, and built out a rock star program.
1: I think that's something very familiar, not with necessarily his program, but the program I mentioned via the NSA sort of endorsement. Very familiar with that. I think the other sort of takeaway for the listener might be uh, on the shoulders of what we just heard is maybe even volunteer if there's a local university and do it in a polite way, but I've looked at sort of final projects and courseware curricula, and sometimes you'd be surprised happily, and sometimes you'll cringe to see what's sort of being taught because you don't really know if, as a student, sometimes if it's worth a damn. But maybe reach out if you have a, a friend or a contact at a at a university that offers information assurance, network security, information security, whatever that might be, to go give that a look.
0: You know, Steve, that's I, you asked me like who's done it in practice, and Curtis is the first one that comes to mind, but there's also people like Sebastian Goodwin. He's the current CISO for Nutanix. I mean, Sebastian did what you we were saying, is he got networked in and he reached out to the school and the university, and then that school and the colleges around that, Todd Barnum, same thing, Who's a, Todd is the CISO at GoPro. They all started working with the universities, just, you know, hey, look, you know what? We wanna give back, we wanna make this a priority. Can we come in and guest lecture? Can we talk about, you know, what we're seeing out there? But Curtis Coleman, Sebastian Goodwin, Todd Barnum, you know, those are the people that come to mind right now for the blueprint that you're recommending for giving back and teaching. But I would encourage people to contact the school and, you know, see if there's an opportunity to come in as a guest lecturer, find out who's teaching, you know, maybe reach out to that professor. I I believe that you're going to be connected. You'll have one or two degrees of separation if you just reach out and say, I want to do this. What are your thoughts and come in as a guest lecture and then see if there's a slot in the future for cybersecurity, technology, or leadership.
1: We're about at time for those that listen in, know that the final question is on the way. Laz, one more for you. Pursuant to the name of our show, The New CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you?
0: I believe being a new CISO is able, ask yourselves, are you coachable? Are you open to feedback and are you willing to learn new ways? Traditional ways of being a CISO, I think have helped us get to where we are, but we have to be thinking about the future, working with the business in partnership that's critical as a new CISO and learning and applying new management skills and being constantly in front of ways to level up your game, both as a business leader, a manager, and hopefully at some point where you're at, at that level whether it's a board member or an executive.
1: I think you, you hit it perfectly. And I think be coachable, but also be a coach, right? So have a mentor, be a mentor kind of mindset, I think is a great way to think of it as well and to cap it off. Laz, I really appreciate the time you spent with us today. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. appreciate it. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.